0: It's the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 28, I'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Jeremiah 28, 1 through 17. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year. Henaniah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of Yahweh, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of Yahweh's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of the priest and all the people who were standing in the house of Yahweh. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, may Yahweh do so. May Yahweh make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of Yahweh and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesied peace, When the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that Yahweh has truly sent the prophet. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, Thus says Yahweh, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Sometime after the prophet Hananiah had broken the yoke bars from off the neck of Jeremiah the prophet, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah Go tell Hananiah, thus says Yahweh, you have broken wooden bars, but you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. I have put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. For I have given to him even the beast of the field. And Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, Yahweh has not sent you, and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die, because you have uttered rebellion against Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, You are not to be trifled with. You are not to be. Spoken. Lightly of casually of you are to be feared to be revered. Forgive us when we take your name in vain. Forgive us when we, I hope unintentionally, but nonetheless, speak lies in your name. Father, may we be bold to declare your truth. But if you have not spoken, may we. Keep our mouths shut. In humility. Give us wisdom and grace, Father. To recognize all the lies so stealthily cloaked in your name as truth, as biblical. Grant us grace to see them. More than that, Father. And as a means to that, grant us grace to love Your truth. And by it be sanctified. In Christ's name, Amen. We have here a showdown between... The false and the true prophet. There are a number of such face-offs in Scripture. The most memorable, perhaps, is that of the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Stunning because, in that instance, as far as mere human ratios go, it was 450 to 1. A less known instance, but not very distant from this one historically, is that of Pelatiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel was told to prophesy against him, and as he did so, Pelatiah falls dead. When we come to the New Testament, one thinks of Ananias. Now, Ananias was not a, a prophet, nor was he a leader who gave wicked counsel like uh, Pelatiah did, but he lied concerning gifts given to the apostles, representing part as the whole, And when Peter confronted him, saying, You have not lied to man, but to God, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, we're told. Acts chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. This episode is a bit more subdued, but just a bit. The results are ultimately the same. There's a face-off. Both of them walk away, but one of them walks away certain to die. And in all these instances, the bad guy's on the ground, the good guy lives on to ride again. But this is not the theme of every story. Sometimes the good guy dies. But this does speak to the way things ultimately play out. Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Winning is not guaranteed in the moment. Persecution is expected, and the reward is in heaven. But it's these episodes... That let you know with whom truth lies. Because men kill true prophets. Whereas God, in these instances, kills the false prophets. And makes plain His word, His truth. When Yahweh decides to draw, He wins every time. Makes plain where truth lies. But what's particular about this showdown is that if you immerse yourself into it, in the moment, isolated from the context that we've been studying, if you immerse yourself into it, you can't immediately distinguish the good guy from the bad guy. Elijah had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Prophet of Yahweh, prophets of Baal. They wore different colors. You could tell who was who. In this instance... Both of them speak in the name of Yahweh. Both of them wear white hats. So who do you know. Lies on which side of the truth. They use the same formulas of expression. And so you can't tell them apart. Just by a look. Or even by casually listening. You have to listen carefully. How can you tell them apart? Well we come to the story. Knowing who wears the white hat. But. Think of a similar situation today. Two biblical teachers stand, supposed biblical teachers, stand opposite of one another. Both using the Bible for their arguments. But making very different points. Contrary points. The differences are not negligible. It's no gentleman's argument over some tertiary issue that's at stake, you understand there's a truth war and life and death is on the line, and yet they're both making what sound like good biblical arguments. How can you know? Well, yes, you test it according to the scripture, but at first glance, it sounds like they're both making biblical arguments. I think our text can speak into this situation. But we can't just jump into it because like most showdowns, there's a backstory to this. We open learning that these things happened in the same year. And the connection that chapter 28 has with what was unfolded for us in chapter 27 is more than just chronology. It's not just that they happened in the same year. What we see in chapter 28 is obedience to the command that Jeremiah received in chapter 27. Chapter 27, he was told to preach the same message to three different audiences. He was to preach it to the foreign envoys who were then to report that message back to their kings. He was to preach it to Zedekiah. He was to preach it to the priests and the people. So now he's at the last audience. He was commanded to make yoke bars and command them. His, his message had two points. It was a simple sermon. One, come under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Two, do not listen to the false prophets. To tell you that Babylon is done with. And that the vessels that have been taken will be restored. Another reason that this, this instance is, is very interesting. Is because while we've heard the message of the false prophets many times as it was God disclosing it. Or Jeremiah speaking of it. This is the first time we see one of them in action. And we hear their words from their own mouths. So Hananiah here addresses Jeremiah, but he does so, verse 1, in the presence of the priest and the people. And while we've seen Jeremiah preach temple sermons, he's doing so right now. We saw him do the same thing in chapter 27, chapter 26. While we see Jeremiah doing this, and Hananiah doesn't appear to be doing anything different. He's preaching a message in the temple in the name of Yahweh. We, we know this. Hananiah has not been sent by Yahweh. So whatever his motivations are, they aren't godly. And with that, I don't want to say this is exactly what's happening, but I think there is a correspondence between what we see here and the way false prophets normally work. They ad- he addresses Jeremiah... In the presence of the people and the priests. Now, Jeremiah will do the same. But whereas we see true prophets in certain instances address individuals, this is at large the main practice of false prophets. They're loud talkers, they like to be overheard, they enjoy and thrive on the crowd. They prophesy. As Jesus said, the Pharisees prayed. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, give the false prophet this. Prophecy, or preaching, or teaching is meant to be heard by others. But if you... If you begin to sense that they're more earnest, that attention be directed at the prophet rather than the prophecy, at the preaching rather at the preacher rather than the preacher, that is a mark of a false teacher. Hananiah's message begins as Jeremiah's do, verses two through four. He claims to speak in the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Surely that alone, though, wasn't enough to deceive the people just speaking in the name of Yahweh. Well, how many Christians do you see get excited because the latest celebrity or athlete or politician has invoked Jesus' name, given glory to Jesus' name in some acceptance speech or or something of the sort? They said, Jesus, what an amazing thing. They must be a great Christian. They said, Jesus. Jesus. It's peculiar that the same person can sometimes recognize T.D. Jakes as blaspheming and yet get so excited whenever some celebrity has said, Jesus, perhaps we want to make a judgment of charity. Well, very well, make the judgment of charity in the benefit of that person, but don't get so excited that that person has said the name of Jesus because then you've fallen into the very trap that the false teachers like. You're more enamored with the preacher than the preaching. Hananiah doesn't deny that the yoke of Babylon, note this in his message, he doesn't deny that the yoke of Babylon is on them. He simply says, Yahweh is going to break it. And so prosperity teachers won't deny that there is such a thing as evil, suffering, pain, and death. What they'll deny is that you, as a Christian, don't need to endure such things. This is not the kind of encouragement that the Scriptures hold out. I love it whenever we're told that Paul strengthened the souls of the disciples. He strengthened, encouraging them. So he strengthened them by encouraging them. And what were the words he used? Well, the sum is... He encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And the result of this broken yoke, Hananiah declares, that will happen within two years. Uh, well, the result of this broken yoke is that within two years, the vessels that have been taken away will return. And it was precisely this message that Jeremiah was to renounce, that he was renouncing. Jeremiah has just been preaching against this very thing. Chapter 27, verse 16, he is to, to declare to the people and the priest, he's to declare to uh, King Zedekiah, don't trust in the words of these prophets who are telling you that the vessels of Yahweh's house will shortly be brought back from Babylon because it's a lie. Instead of restoration, Jeremiah tells them, chapter 27, verses 19 through 22, that those vessels that Nebuchadnezzar didn't take on his first siege of Jerusalem, he'll take those into Babylon. Jeremiah has declared that there will be an exile of 70 years. The worst is yet to come. Hananiah says, all these things will be restored in two years. The worst has passed. False prophets today are still fond of date setting. To their credit, frequently the date setting does have reference to judgment. Sometimes. But nonetheless, the date comes. And it passes. And nothing has come to pass. Nonetheless. They still set dates. But readiness in the Scriptures doesn't mean looking to the heavens for some kind of immediate event. Readiness throughout the Scriptures again and again doesn't mean looking to the heavens. It means living heavenly. It means living to do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. That is what readiness in light of Christ's coming means. Whenever you then hear that preacher play prophet and set a date, mark your calendar. Not because you think, hey, it might play out, he might prove to be a true prophet. Mark your calendar so that whenever that date passes and nothing has come to pass, you might make it plain and obvious yet again. He's, this, this proves itself again and again and you have record of it. He's proved himself wrong. Don't. Listen to him. But that's not all, Hananiah says. There's more, verse 4. Not only will the vessels that have been taken be restored, but all the exiles will return. And then a very peculiar element that... You have to wonder why Hananiah threw this bit in. He says Jeconiah will return. That couldn't have been welcome news by Zedekiah, who was acting as king. But the only explanation I know that makes any sense of this is that there are extra-biblical sources that make it seem as though Jeconiah was still the one recognized both by Babylon and very likely by the people as well as being the true king. Again, the reason for all of this, he says, verse 4, is that Yahweh will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So Hananiah's message doesn't just speak of peace, we've we've seen that as the message of the prophets again and again. Peace, peace, when there is no peace, they say. But one of victory, or at least of their enemy's defeat, the vessels will return, the exiles will return. And with this, we see what are today still the dominant notes of many false preachers. These are the notes they play on again and again. They rarely strike the minor key. They like their tunes buoyant and bouncy. Now these are all notes that the Scriptures play. The telling thing is that these are the only notes that they play. Before you know exactly what's wrong with a false teacher you may begin to sense something is wrong because of how a peculiar vein of thought or a motif or a theme or a promise is exaggerated. While others seem to be absent. Whenever one truth is exaggerated to the exclusion of others, something's amiss. And there's very likely false teaching that runs deep underneath all that Bible talk. So often, is absent is any notion of repentance, judgment, wrath, righteousness, holiness. False teachers rarely ever preach expository sermons. I'm a. Uh, In the vein of prosperity gospel teachers, I'm not aware of any. There are whole chunks of the Bible that they want absolutely nothing to do with. They avoid. It would be an interesting study for someone to compile all the sermon texts of some well-known, prominent prosperity teacher, compile all their sermon texts, One that has a long ministry. Compile all the sermon texts and see what percentage of the whole Bible they represent. And then alongside that, to gather how many of those texts are repeated and how frequently they're repeated. Same message, same text, again and Again. And if it does appear, there's another kind of more sophisticated false teacher that does deal with the text. And whenever he does, listen carefully, and I think what you'll spot is that rather than pulling truth out of the text, they're pushing lies into it. And the way it most often works is they want to get you to think with a different paradigm. They want to hollow out biblical words and put a new meaning into them so that you read the text Differently. You begin to read the scriptures with alien lenses that color everything else. They want to get you to redefine and reimagine as you come to the text. Jeremiah's response to this is to rebuke Hananiah as publicly as Hananiah preached. It's sad how often I see false teachers defended with something like this Did you talk to that? Teacher, did, did you correspond? Did you email? Did you, did you try to show them their error? Well, whenever a brother sins against you, you should go to them privately first. And seek to reconcile. But when it comes to a false teacher or false teaching in general... The rebuke should be as public as the sin. False teaching, whenever it's published, spoken, when it's public, should be publicly rebuked. Any kindness shown to false teaching is not kindness to a false teacher. It's cruelty to those he's deceiving. Whenever Peter was publicly in the wrong, Paul publicly rebuked him. Galatians 1.14 And then if an apostle can do that with another apostle, surely we're at liberty concerning false teachers. Well, I'm not an apostle. Well, neither are they. Despite what they claim, neither are they. So you're on equal ground still. Jeremiah's response to Hananiah is surprising. Verse 6. It would have been interesting to see the faces of everyone through this exchange. I think this moment, though, would be just grand to see. Jeremiah responds with a hearty, Amen! Verse 6. Now some suspect that he does so with a sarcastic tone, but I don't think that really grasps the gravity with which Jeremiah speaks in this instance. I don't think that's true. Jeremiah's message will soon have some bite to it, but I think he's genuinely giving his amen to most everything that Hananiah has said here. The one thing he does not mention is the return of Jeconiah. You see, the vessels will indeed return. Jeremiah said so, chapter 27, verses 21 through 22. Those that were carried to Babylon will remain there until the day that Yahweh visits them, he says. And then he will bring them back and restore them to this place. He has said that the exiles will return. Chapter 24, verses 4 through 7. You remember those good figs and those bad figs? And the good figs were the exiles? And he says he will bring them back to the land. That he will plant them and not pluck them up. And give them a heart to know Yahweh. And Jeremiah has said that the yoke of Babylon will be broken. Chapter 27, verse 7. All the nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. The critical factor in all of this is timing. We could say that Hananiah's error was one of an over-realized eschatology. That's a fancy way of saying that they got the cart way in front of the horse. Eschatology is the study of the end. So an over-realized eschatology means they want the very end to be realized before the very end. Now with Jesus' first advent and resurrection, the future kingdom began in breaking into the present. This is the kingdom come. But... It's not fully come yet. The future is present, but it's not fully present. And the present is not yet fully past. We live in this this time where an age is fading away and an age is breaking in. And so it is that many false teachers promise no pain, no suffering. All health and wealth and happiness. All victory. Some even promising victory over sin in this life. And a great deal of what they say is ours in Christ. A great deal of what they say is true. The critical factor is timing. And they go wrong with their timing... Because their hearts are wrong. And you see that what they really desire. Is not Jesus. But his stuff. They don't really want Christ. They want what Christ can give them. And they'll have it right now. In his name. So. Say some false teacher comes in here, promising health and wealth and blessing, and you're waiting for an elder to tear in. And instead of tearing in, his first response is, Amen! And now you get something, I think, of the moment. But then that word you're hoping for comes, but... And Jeremiah says, Amen, yet, verse 7, yet. Jeremiah has prophesied many of the same things, but he's always held them out as mercies to come on the other side of repentance and or judgment. Jeremiah now puts Hananiah to the test, setting up a contrast in verses 7 and 8. What has been the dominant message of the prophets of old since ancient times? What have they said? Largely it's been a message of war, famine, and pestilence. The prophets were raised up by Yahweh whenever the people, the priests, the kings had broken covenant. They were raised up to call the people back to covenant faithfulness, to call them to repent. And they do hold out messages of hope and mercy and grace, but they're almost always within the setting of a message that calls for repentance or warns of judgment. And then even though God judges, He will be faithful to His covenant, though they have not been. Jeremiah's message fits this pattern. And so, whenever you have a prophet speaking in Yahweh's name, a message of peace, the only way to really know if that's true is to wait it out. But you see what this means. If Jeremiah's right, and they repent and they return, then they're promised grace. They will keep their lives if they come under the yoke of Babylon. But if they don't listen to Jeremiah, and they hope for this peace, well then, or they hope for victory. They've readied their hearts to be rebels, to see Babylon defeated. Well then, they've brought greater judgment upon themselves. In Deuteronomy, two tests are laid out by which to judge false teachers, prophets. Chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, if he speaks a word, it doesn't come to pass. He's not to be feared, he's to be executed. In Deuteronomy 13, you've got one that calls for you to go after other gods, to break covenant, to violate God's law. The prophets who speak in the name of false gods, or call you to follow false gods, or break God's law, it's just clear they want you to violate some command of God, well, those are the ones that are easy to deal with. It's those who speak in Yahweh's name. But you sense something is off. That you might be called on to wait for. But I think Jeremiah in this instance is telling us. I think this is the the dominant uh, experience. is you don't really have to wait. I think it's it's being made clear. Because of the precedent that's been set, set by all the prophets of old. That any waiting on a message of peace is really wishful thinking. Don't wait around listening to a guy that you suspect might be a false teacher, hoping he's not. Don't keep listening to his teaching, thinking he might prove not to be a heretic. Walk the old paths. Listen to men who are faithful. Whenever the next Rob Bell pops up, don't Think, man, he's so hip and cool, and he, he seems pretty right on most things. I hope he doesn't become an outright heretic. Don't wait around for a guy to, pr- to prove his heresy whenever you kind of suspect it. What I mean is, listen to Sinclair Ferguson more than you're enamored with the latest Francis Chan. Whenever the new hip, cool guy comes along and you think everything's good, everything sounds good, and he's repackaging it in such a way that's endearing and and fresh and people are excited about it, keep listening to the old, the tested, the proven. Listen to those men who their commitment to the orthodox creeds and confessions is just outright and blatant. Listen to the guy who it's plain that his commitment is is concerned more with faithfulness than it is with originality or or freshness or newness or hipness. Stick with the tried and true. Now each prophet has made their opening statements. So it's time for rebuttals. Hananiah decides to perform his own sign act. Here is Jeremiah dominating the, the visual scene with the yoke bars. And so, in what I think, very clearly has some anger and violence involved in it. and Ananiah breaks the yoke bars, saying that so Yahweh will break the yoke of Babylon. And that, I, that there was something violent and, and there was some kind of anger involved in this, I think is clear by Jeremiah's response. At this point, he walks away. saints. Know this, the truth does not need us to shout louder. Jeremiah displays no cowardice here. He concedes nothing. He simply walks away. He's declared the word faithfully. That's what's required of us. You don't need to win. God does not need us to win every showdown. He will win in the end, in His time. Faith can walk away in confidence knowing God is looking over His Word to perform it. I don't need to make the Word happen. I simply declare it and rest in faith and joy that it doesn't depend upon me. We can all take argument Debate, apologetics, even evangelism, too personally. But the false teacher cannot but do so. The saint shouldn't take it personally. The false teacher cannot but take it personally. Because the visions are his own visions. His dreams are his own dreams. They come from his own mind, the deceit of his own heart. Chapter 23, verse 26. So why do false teachers so often get angry whenever they're challenged confronted or anyone wants to be- to debate them? Why is their response so often as it seems Han and I was to simply yell louder? Why do they respond in anger and violence frequently? It's because it's all personal. That's why you'll hear some of them respond with something like touch not the Lord's anointed. In our zeal for the truth. We may feel we need to get the last word. The longest word or the loudest word. Remember. God's word does not need our own. When you declare it you can declare it and walk away as Spurgeon said. The word of God can take care of itself. And we'll do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See that, see you that lion? They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion? What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent on defending a lion. Oh fools, slow of heart. Open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. And still in this, from another angle, you see that Jeremiah is made distinct from Hananiah in this. In this regard, false prophets are always superior to the true. They're never at a lack for a word. One reason why Jeremiah walks away is he has nothing more to say. God has not spoken. He's declared what God had to say in faithfulness. Repeating it isn't going to bring about anything new. The false prophet need never be at a word because he's just making stuff up. The true prophet waits on God and his word. Sometime later, but not too long after this episode, Yahweh gives Jeremiah a word specifically for Hananiah, verse 15. So in a way, Hananiah does receive word from Yahweh. Through a true prophet, as a false prophet. Hananiah has broken wooden bars only to make bars of iron in their place, verse 16. False prophets don't simply awaken false hope. They bring greater judgment. Jeremiah chapter 23, Yahweh declared, In the prophets of Jerusalem I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Jesus elaborated on this principle saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he has become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. When the false prophet's message of peace is believed, the result is greater wrath. Their message is not only empty of salvation, it is full of judgment. Hananiah has... Not been sent by Yahweh, but he will be removed by him. Verse 15. In the same year, Hananiah will die. Hananiah has said that the vessels of the temple were return into two years. In two months, Hananiah is removed from the living. I believe the chief thing that this chapter is meant to do is put exclamation points on the two dominant sentences of the previous chapter. Bear the yoke. Do not listen to them. How do we identify them when they come in sheep's clothing? When they use Yahweh's name, Jesus' name. Whenever it seems that their arguments are biblical, they're promising the very same things. Look for what is emphasized and what is absent. Look for what's emphasized. Is their eschatology overrealized? Now, that's a really kind way to put their sin, isn't it? They have an overrealized eschatology. What it means is they hold out God's good graces and promises and make idols out of them. It means that they take God's good gifts. And write God on them and demand that God give them in the name of God. Though their mouths are full of praise, can you see that it's not really the Father they want, but their inheritance? They demand it like the prodigal. C.S. Lewis warned put first things first, and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first, and we lose both first and second things. Elsewhere he said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. For all their heavenly talk, for all the heavenly elements, that the godly, heavenly looking elements, they they presume, that they put on stage. For all their heavenly talk, they're really all about earth. It's earth that they want, and they just found a clever way to make their idolatry look so pious in Jesus' name. They mask their earthly lusts as heavenly rites. To quote Lewis one last time, He, God, can't be used as a road. If you're approaching Him not as the end, but as the means, you're not really approaching Him at all. The false teachers are trying to walk on God, not to God. And that that is the case is plain this. They don't really approach God through Christ. Christ crucified, risen, ascended. And that they don't do so can be seen in what is absent. What's absent? Like we said, any, any notion of judgment, repentance, wrath. They may say Jesus suffered so that you don't have to. But do they tell you that you will share in His sufferings, that you might also share in His glory? Oh, they say Jesus suffered to to free us from all the effects of sin. But do they preach Christ's death as one of substitution, one of propitiation where He placated, where He appeased, where He satiated? The wrath of God against our sins. Will they mention that all those blessings that they say that are are ours in Jesus, will they mention, will they glory in, will they focus on how they are ours because of how Jesus' death dealt with sin? Will they speak of His life as one of perfect obedience to God, as the act of obedience to Christ? Will they speak of all of Jesus' obedience as an obedience that was achieved as our substitute as our federal head so that if we trust in him we're justified we're justified by faith this alien righteousness is imputed to us do they glory and revel in that do they make much of that do they speak of how his passive obedience his suffering for all of our wrongdoing suffering the curse Of the law that we might be forgiven. Do they speak of his suffering as a ransom. A payment. A payment made by his precious blood. So that we could be bought out of our bondage to sin and death. When they speak of the resurrection of Christ. Do they tell you how you were spiritually stillborn. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But... Because of His great mercy, God raised you up with Christ. Will they speak of adoption as the chief and greatest blessing that we have because of this atonement? This adoption that we have to the Father because of the Son as we're put in union with Him by the Spirit. Will they speak of knowing God, the Father, not His inheritance. That he gives us. But relating to him. And knowing him. And enjoying him as father. Do they speak of that as the chief and greatest blessing of redemption. And as evidence of that supreme love toward God. Will you ever hear them say anything like Job. Though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him. Or. Yahweh gave. Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Or do you ever hear them speak as Paul did concerning his ministry and how it impacted those he loved? Saying, we, that's a ministerial we that Paul is speaking with there. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Since we have, believed, have the same spirit of faith according to what is written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. Paul is saying we as God's ministers suffer all this for your sake. This is a false prophet who's not promising the absence of suffering in their lives. He's saying the presence of suffering in his life is for God's purposes. So that as it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Or do you ever hear them say with Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to, upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Saints, note what is exaggerated. And note what is absent. When you smell... That mark of a false teacher. Do not listen to them. Repent of your sins. Believe in the incarnate crucified. Risen and ascended Christ. Pick up your cross and follow Him. Bear His yoke. Persevere in the faith. By faith. And look for His blessed return. And look for it chiefly and supremely. Because what you desire is to look on Him. With eyes unhindered by, the, by sin and its curse. And everything else, its chief joy, is simply to see His glory reflected in all His good gifts. Do not listen to any prophet who would direct your gaze otherwise than to the Christ in whose name they make all their blasphemous promises. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Whom have we in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth we desire besides you. Father, our flesh and heart may fail, but you are the strength of our heart, and you are our portion forevermore. Amen.